The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, we're looking at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and we've been out of Mark since uh, the end of November. But we ended in Mark chapter 4 with a question. And the question was, when Jesus calmed the storm, which was this violent storm, and the people all thought they were going to drown in the boat, you remember, and Jesus wonderfully heals them. And... Um, And when he, when he, not heals them, but when he delivers them and calms the storm, and now they're more afraid, and they say to one another, who then is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Well, it leaves us hanging with a question. Well, the question gets answered for us the rest of the book, but particularly in this next passage. We're going to get an answer twice, so look for him. Here we go. This is the calming of the storm take two, because everything that pretty much happened in the first calming of the storm, now we're going to get another storm. And the storm is going to be a person who has a storm inside of him that's going to need to be calmed and silenced. And we'll see what kind of response it leads to. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerizines. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him. Out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into this, in the sea. The herdsmen fled, told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who'd had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting in the boat, the man who possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them. He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. Well, we're going to look at 
we're probably going to run out of time, but there, there are five things to consider, and we'll probably get about three of them. You have the complication in verses 1 to 5, the confrontation, verses 6 to 13, the investigation, verses 14 to 16, the extermination of Jesus, verse 17 and 18, and the proclamation of this man who had been demon-possessed in verses 19 to 20. We'll probably only get to the first three. The complication. The story is complicated. It's filled with challenges. And we first it might read over some of these challenges and just kind of miss some of the clues that are in the text because it's a strange passage indeed. But picture yourself as one of the 12 disciples. You have survived the storm at sea. And you are glad to be putting your feet on solid ground. But you know the territory you're going is like we're going to Alcatraz. I mean, if I say the word Alcatraz to you, what do you conjure up in your mind? You know that if you were going to go over there, at least there are locks on the doors. And at least they're in prison. At least there's guards to protect you. But you know you're going to a creepy place. Well, this is much creepier because... They know. The word has spread. The triple negative. Nobody can bind him. <laughs> We're told nobody can... Um, we get three negatives here. Um, let's see if we can pick them up. Verse 4, and 3 and 4. No one can bind him, not even with a chain. And then it says um, that no one had the strength to subdue him and that's just a nice word for the greek word tame nobody could tame him it's the picture of he's a wild animal but worse okay so when you get the triple negative you realize man like word has spread this is like the discards and the rejects of society this guy has problems he has issues and we don't know what to do with it we've tried chains and all kinds of stuff and different other texts tell us like when he's clothed and in his right mind I mean Matthew and, and Luke tell the story as well that basically he didn't wear clothes anymore so this guy is naked and he's, he, he's not around family anymore and he has no home and his home is rather by the tombs and so as you start as you're one of these 12 disciples you know there's going to be I'm glad to be on getting my put my, my sea legs back and getting out of this storm, thankful, but you get out and you start to realize all of the clues are telling me that I am in the most incredibly filthy place. And if you don't pick up filth in the place, it's because we're so busy looking at the elephant that we forget the room. And what is the room? Well, the room, I mean, for, for a Jew, a good 12 disciples here, their, their alarm bells are all checking all the boxes of filth right? Do we have a cemetery? Does the Bible say you can't be, you know, around anybody that's dead or touch anybody dead, be around anything like that? Does that check the box of filth from Numbers 19, 11 to 14? Check. So already we got a filthy guy who's unclean because he's around dead people. Check. Do we have pigs? Lots of pigs within eyesight and where people raise pigs, hang out with pigs, and people eat swine... And we got a violation of Leviticus 11.7? Check. That's filthy. Do we have a Gentile region that is non-Jewish and unclean called the Decapolis? Two Greek words, 10 cities. But to let you know, very Greek area, very Gentile, lots of pork, 
swine-eating people to these disciples. It's like, check, everything is unclean. And then we get to the elephant, which we've all been looking at. And Mark doesn't tell us once or twice, but three times that he's unclean. Verse 2, verse 8, and verse 13 to remind us that we are in an incredibly filthy area. But the good news is filth, filth doesn't scare Jesus away. Not at all. What does Jesus do when he sees filth? Does he run away or does he run to it? Does he get the disciples and go all the way across the lake to the other side that nobody wants to go to? He's on a mission. And it's to get to the filth, to, to get to the problem, because he loves and he cares. And so Jesus is dealing with the filth. And we're told that this unclean spirit, which is called in, at the end of verse 2, it's got an unclean spirit. We're told in, in verse 8 that he has an unclean spirit. But in verse 13, he gave him permission and the unclean spirits, plural, because a legion was 5,600, which most just rounded up to 6,000 troops is what a legion was. And so this man is loaded down with demons, enough that it can take care of 2,000 pigs and, and go into them and all of them go and, and kamikaze into the sea, okay? So here we're, we're getting this picture of the elephant now. We're seeing lots of uncleanness, but you had to be thinking, if you're one of the disciples, what are we doing here, Jesus? <laughs> like everything about this is sending alarm bells of like, we are uncomfortable, we are out of our comfort zones, we have gone across the track, we are going to a neighborhood that we don't go to, we don't hang out, this is the worst possible place that you could take us. And Jesus goes right there with his disciples, okay? And so, and we know that this man is, um, has no home, he's living far from society, he doesn't sleep much, because day and night he's crying out and he's a cutter. He cuts himself regularly. He's a tortured soul who's torturing now his body. He's a menace and problem to society, to his family, to his friends. So he's been removed from them. And now we see that he's a menace to himself. That's why this text, we would say, is the complication. And you think to yourself, well, aren't we glad we don't have any problems like this today? And maybe to bring this down into our world, how might this be relevant for us? Well, when you look at this word, what it says, nobody could subdue him. Nobody could tame him. It's the Greek word demazo, only used one other time in the whole New Testament. When you click on it, it comes up James 3. And James 3 describes another animal that can't be tamed. And the animal is the human tongue. And the Bible just says this in James 3. It says the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it boasts of great things. Behold how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among the members is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of bird, beast and birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. 
With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in the image or likeness of God. So you think, well, it's great, nobody has those problems today. Well, the problem's in us. We all have something untamable. And just as this man needed to be tamed by Jesus, our tongue, just try to tame your tongue. Just try it this week. I tried. I said, this week, I am not going to do anything with my tongue to harm somebody. And it didn't last long. It didn't last long. Just mowed somebody down. That's what I do. Just try. Just, just work on it this week. So I'm going to tame my tongue. Good luck with that. You need the Lord. And so what the Bible actually begins to describe to us is that the problem isn't just our tongue because the tongue is reality. Jesus says this comes out of the heart is what comes out of the mouth. And so the problem is deeper. It's down in the heart. And the problem in the heart is because we have been part of darkness and a dark world. And the Bible just says that to become a believer in Jesus, that God has to open our eyes. This is Acts 26, 18. He says through the ministry of Paul, he's going to use his preaching of the gospel to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we have to be, to, to come to Christ, we have to be delivered from the power of Satan to God. And none of us have that power in ourselves. God has to do that because the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the enemy, the spirit who is it now at work in the sons of disobedience. Even though we don't know it or understand it, the devil himself is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So not, it's not just this man of the tombs that needs to be delivered. We're in a culture. We're part of it. Just think about this for a minute. Our chains and shackles look a little different, but we're a part of a culture that's enchained to entertainment, it's enslaved as a culture to sex and romance. We're in bondage to this idol of approval, and its symptoms are an addiction to our appearance and the image of how we dress and how we're per perceived. We're shackled to efficiency. It doesn't matter how, you know, as long as we can get it done fast, and we're in love with no pain, whatever drug it takes, just make sure I'm never in any pain. It's my inalienable right to be medicated whenever necessary. We're sold out to education. We will do everything to get that scholarship. And we're enchained to competition because my child will not be average. C.S. Lewis in his autobiography described his conversion as a zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Maybe we're more like this guy than we thought. I was recently reading Jonathan Edwards' sermon, God Glorified in Man's Dependence, and he's writing a long time ago, the 1700s, so this is kind of hard language to follow. But what he's getting at is he's talking about the power of God involved to bring us out of darkness and into light. And he argues that, that Adam in the garden was absolutely dependent on God for everything at creation, for life, health, and all things. But the power of God now in the Christian's life has to be greater. This is what he argues. He says, you take these verses that talk about us being created in Christ Jesus. 
anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, new has come. We know these verses, right? Where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus or put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He says that creation is a much greater work, new creation now for Christians, because of the heights of which men have fallen. It is a more glorious effect of power to make that holy, that which was so depraved and under the dominion of sin, than to confer holiness on that which had nothing to the contrary, Adam and Eve. It is a more glorious work of power to rescue a soul out of the hands of the devil and from the powers of darkness and to bring it into a state of salvation than to confer holiness where there was no prepossession or opposition. Do you see what he's saying? It would have been much easier to just confer holiness upon Adam and Eve than it is to, to save you and me. But here's the kicker. Not only does Edward say it was a greater work to save you, it's a greater work to sustain you. We're being kept right now this very moment. 1 Peter 1.5 says we are being kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And Edwards goes on to say, so it's a more glorious work of power to uphold a soul in the state of grace and holiness and carry it till it's brought to glory where there is so much remaining in the heart resisting and Satan opposing with all his might than it would have been to have kept man from falling at first when Satan had nothing in man. So this passage is relevant to us. We may not look like we've got 5,600 demons in us and cutting ourselves night and days, crying out and running around naked. I don't see that, thankfully. But we all have issues where we are sinners and we do sinful things. And Jesus comes and confronts this man out of compassion. We see his power. And as I said, the question ended in the last chapter, who then is this? Well, what was the answer as I read the text? Did you get the double answers? First of all, the demons have great theology and, they, and the, the, the they being legion, they, as soon as they sees Jesus get out of the boat, runs and falls down before him and says, I adjure you, Jesus, or he refers to him as Jesus, son of the most high God. The demons have amazing theology. This demon knows some amazing things about his name is Jesus, that he's the son of the most high God, and he's begging him not to torment me, or as in other, as Mark and, and or, uh, Matthew and Luke's account is, don't, begged him, don't send us to the abyss. And the other, it was, don't torment us before the time. So the other gospel writers add in some pieces that, that the demons know they're going to be punished at the end of time for all eternity. They're going to be tormented. They know that. They know they're the losers. They know they're in the presence of a far superior power. They know what his name is, Jesus. They know he's the son of most high God. Do you know that? I mean, the demons know that. But yet, it doesn't change them. Okay? And so there's no army, you know, this, this is a huge army of de demons, and what we're seeing here is this great contest. It's a confrontation, but it's a contest. And what's amazing is that Jesus is the one that's going out to do the conquest. You think about the book of, of Mark and how it begins with a voice crying out in the wilderness, and it's John the Baptist, and then we see that Jesus goes into the wilderness, and, he go, and the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to do conflict with the devil. And he's going to be tempted by him, but he's going to overcome. 
And now he's going to the other side of the lake, and, mo and many scholars think that this actual storm was produced demonically or some type of evil uh, intrusion of trying to, to get rid of Jesus, but that Jesus is the one who's on the mission. He is on the attack. We were reading a, a, an article this week in our staff by David Cassidy, who's a PCA pastor down at Spanish River in Florida. And he was talking about our normal thinking is that, oh, Jesus is, is being attacked by Satan. And, and, and reality is reading Mark's just the other way around. Jesus is taking the mission. He's taking it to the street. Jesus is the one who's going into this region. And notice how many times it uses the word region or country. And Jesus is going into this country that's completely a Gentile area, completely unclean, completely filthy. But Jesus is the one who's taken it to Satan because think Joshua. Think the book of Joshua. And then put Jesus in there as the true and better Joshua. Because it's a, it's a wilderness theme. Starts with a wilderness. Jesus is now in, in the wilderness and he's taken the battle. And, and he's, so you have this wilderness, but now we have a second theme of like promised land and conquest. And we've got enemies that are a problem. And the enemies have to be rooted out and conquered. And so in the book of Joshua, God raises up Joshua and tells him, everywhere you tread, everywhere the sole of your foot touches, I'm going to give you this land. And you read that story and then you get to this place in Joshua 5, what happens? is that all of a sudden this guy shows up with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua goes out to say, hey, are you for us or against us? Are you, are you with us or against us? And the one with the drawn sword says, no. Wrong question. As the commander of the Lord's army, I have come. Take off your sandals, for you're in the presence of holy ground. And Joshua worships and realizes he's in the presence of Jesus. And what you have here is the commander of the Lord's army is showing up again. And he's on a mission to take back territory. He's taken it to Satan. He's on a mission. He's come, and, and the first thing out of his mouth is, repent for the kingdom of God's at hand. He's bringing the kingdom to bear, and now he's bringing it to this area called the Decapolis, these 10 cities, and where he goes to the, the creepiest guy, the guy that we think this guy's like a, a freak show, and Jesus is going to deliver him. And the first missionary in the book of Mark is right here. And he begs to go with Jesus. And Jesus doesn't accept the request. He tells him, go tell your friends. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And notice the theology of verse 19 and 20. Go home to your friends Tell him how much the Lord has done for you. And so what does he do? He goes home to proclaim how much Jesus had done for him. So Lord and Jesus are exact equivalents. It's a strong declaration of deity that Jesus is God, that he's the Lord. And what Jesus wants him to tell is when you think about this passage, and I say what attribute of Jesus is most exalted in this passage, what would you say? We'd be inclined to say his power, certainly his power and his sovereignty, but is that what Jesus wants him to go to tell his friends? No. He says, go tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how the Lord has had mercy on you. 
Go tell them about the mercy. Jesus wants us to remember how merciful he was because this man was filthy and in torment. Of course, it had to be power, but the mercy of Jesus is that Jesus knew his need from the other side of the lake, actually from the other side of the world, from the other side of the universe, from as far away as heaven itself. And he came all the way down from heaven, came all the way to earth, went all the way across the Sea of Galilee to get to this one man to deliver him because he loved him and wanted to show mercy on him. That's Jesus, the lover of our souls. Has he ministered that grace to you? Isn't it interesting that there's three begs in this text? The word beg just kind of runs throughout this text. The first begging is the begging of these demons themselves. They begged him, Lord, don't, don't send us out of the country. Let us still do business in this region. We love this darkness, and we've got a stronghold here in Decapolis. Let us stay in this region. And some mysterious reason, Jesus gives permission. So that's the first beg. The second beg is when the people, now the townspeople, the city people, they all do the investigation, they come together, and now they beg Jesus to depart from the region. And then we have the last beg, which is the man himself who's been delivered now begs to go with Jesus to be with him. Now, what do you think is surprising about the three begs? You would certainly think of the three prayers that are offered in this text that certainly the Lord will grant the Christian's request and deny the other two. And that's exactly the opposite of what happens. He grants the two begs of the, of the demons themselves and of the townspeople who don't believe and they want Jesus to go away. And then the very one who's the believer now and changed, who begs to be with them, he says no to that request and grants the other two. How does that settle with you? It should make us consider that Jesus doesn't play on our ball field all the time. And even though we're believers, we have to pray your will be done and not my will. And sometimes God has plans that we can't understand. And usually in the Gospels, when Jesus heals somebody, what does he say to them? Don't tell anybody. Does he say don't tell anybody in this text? I mean, everything is opposite in this text. He tells him to go and tell because now he's in a Gentile area. And he knows that he's going to leave a witness to this dark area. He's going to send a missionary back to his friends. Go and tell them what the Lord has done. Jesus knows what he is doing. And so what we see in this text is the wisdom of Jesus is beautiful. And sometimes God's plans are just not our plans. I love the story that I shared in Sunday school and I've shared with a few people about this 27-year-old Kenmore mechanic up in Buffalo. And he's the guy that was through the night, his, car's, his truck is running out of gas, somehow through the night in the middle of this massive blizzard of which there was no help. He ends up saving, a, he, he finds a, a, some 
kid that's stranded and an elderly person and now they're in the truck with him and they're running out of gas and so he goes knocking on doors he went to at least five different doors told him I'll pay you $500 if you just let us sleep on the floor so let me sleep on the floor I'll give you $500 all five homes said no nice so this 27 year old mechanic is pretty smart he gets out his cell phone he does, I guess, the, the GPS thing, and there's a school right here. He takes the brake pads out of his truck, these used brake pads, and breaks a window of the school, and he goes into the school, and now he's able to find food in the kitchen and only takes the right amount needed, and he gets food for them, and then he goes to the nurse's station, finds some blankets, he's got heat in there, and then as he goes outside, he realizes there's all these other people that are, that are stranded. And he rescues another, between 10 to 24 people, depending on what you want to call a life save. But at one point, 24 people are in that school, enjoying the food and the warmth, instead of being out there in the freezing. And then the next morning, he gets out the uh, snowblower from the closet and actually cleaned off everybody's car so they could get out. And then they did all the dishes and fixed everything, even put, put a, a thing up over the window and left a nice note apologizing for breaking the window, using a little bit of food, but I had to save these lives. In an interview, he said, if the people had, had, that said no had said yes, I would not have been able to save these lives. And he was grateful that the people had said no so that he could be used to save these lives. And the police department's calling him a hero for what he did. But it seemed like a total backwards plan. But see, God often has that. And there's places right now where you're thinking, why, Lord, am I here? And sometimes when people get newly converted, they want to leave their profession and go into the ministry. They want to leave being the accountant, leave being the lawyer, leave being the doctor, nurse, whatever they were in, teacher, whatever. And now all of a sudden they want to be in ministry. And often the best thing is, no, no, stay where you're at. Go and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. That's Jesus' plan of reaching the world. And so we see that Jesus is the true and better Joshua. He does this, and Jesus said, If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then you will know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And that's what we're seeing here, is that Jesus has come to win a victory. Jesus, the whole book of Mark is, is, is this idea, this in this article we're reading by David Cassidy, is a reminder that even the word gospel, partly what it meant was victory. You go and tell the good news, but the good news in that context, in that culture was victory. We won. We won the battle. And the good news of the gospel is we won the battle. And so do you believe that, that we won a battle in Jesus? Because here's what happened. Jesus comes to earth and he comes and he goes all the way to a cross. And at the cross, we're told at the cross that he forgave us all our trespasses or sins. This is Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He forgives us all of our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And now the devil is meddling in a quarrel, not his own. It's not your beef. You're not the offended party. 
The offended party has already been pacified. As a matter of fact, it's been propitiated. The penalty's been paid, and God doesn't require double jeopardy. So for God to punish the sin twice would be unjust. And so you tell the devil to shut up because you're not the offended party. And the offended party's been satisfied by the blood of Jesus shed on a cross. So therefore, your sins have been removed, and now God is faithful and just. He has to be just to forgive you because... He loves you and has forgiven you in Jesus and he's won the victory there and forgave us our sins there and the debt has been canceled. The devil has no arrows in his quiver, can't shoot anything at you because there's nothing to shoot at you because your sins have been forgiven. The only arrow we ever had was unforgiven sin and now he can't shoot it. He's been disarmed. And so the cross, as Cassidy writes in this article, was the ultimate battle for the souls of humanity and creation itself and on Golgotha, the place of the skull as it's called, Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushed the serpent's head. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was God's announcement to the disciples and to the world that death and devil and the devil were defeated and that Christ now has destroyed through death the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2.14. So when Christ died and rose again, he became supreme over death and the grave. And Jesus says when he shows at the beginning of Revelation, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's Jesus, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. And so Cassidy says, to this day, every new gospel preaching church planted, every new birth of the soul, and every penetration of the gospel into new regions reveals the unfolding of Christ's victory at the cross, this victory that's already been won. So here's the good news as we come to the table. There's now no temperament that Jesus can't control. This is Ray Ortland wrote this in an article. He said, there's no madness he can't soothe. There's no darkness he can't illuminate. There's no chain he cannot break. There's no raving he cannot calm. There's no shame he cannot dignify. There's no nakedness he cannot clothe. There's no legion he cannot command. Jesus shows, exalts his power and his pity and his wisdom in coming to this man. And he does the same with people like you and me. And so as we come to the table, I want you to know that this is a reminder of personal love. It's a personal table of grace. It's table fellowship with the King of kings and Lord of lords who bids us to come because he loves us and that he's forgiven our sins and he's won that victory for us. Do you trust him? Or are you still thinking you, you can do this on your own? You can't. Trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your power, your might, and your mercy. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's none like you. Even an army of demons is no match for you. We praise you. And we ask that you would bring this power at work in our lives. We welcome you in and not out of our lives. Have your way among us. Rule and reign over us and in us and through us. For we ask in your name. Amen.